Why, hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We've got a special show today. One of our members is not here. Glenn Sunshine is on the road, but we have someone to fill in for him, and uh, this special guest is, a, is a, a real treat for us to have on the show. But before we talk to him and let him introduce himself, let me just remind everybody, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I taught philosophy for about a decade at the college level. I've been a real estate investor and have done some writing, and my latest book is in the house of Tom Bombadil. Okay, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, and a few other things. Uh, one of the places is at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And we've got on the show today an old friend, Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio. And uh, Ken and I have been together a few times, and uh, we have a mutual friend, John Sundet, who listens to yeah. our show regularly back in Connecticut. And uh, anyway, he was the person that uh, got us to meet each other in person uh, years back. But Ken, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe give our listeners a little uh, intro to what Mars Hill Audio is about, because that's the theme of the day, of today's show. Yeah. Uh, I uh, First of all, I'm living in central Virginia near Charlottesville, Virginia. I've lived here. We've lived in central Virginia since 1988. I'm an East Coast native. Uh, Mars Hill Audio is my main job. Uh, I'm host and producer, and uh, we do interviews with guests about questions in culture, uh, looking at uh, culture theologically and practically. Uh, I s- often, when I try to summarize what we're about, I, I say that we're trying to uh, uh, we're trying to build a better understanding of what's distinctively. Uh, problematic with the culture of modernity, with modern culture, which requires some thinking about culture more generally and a lot of historical material. But then I'm also interested in uh, asking questions about what would our cultural lives look like if they were more fully informed by a Christian understanding of reality. Mm. And uh, so all of my guests, that, that's the ultimate aim. Now, obviously, not everybody I interview talks about those things specifically. Some people I interview don't even know uh, that's what I'm interested in learning about. <laughs> Some of my guests aren't Christians uh, I've interviewed, uh, but but if they have a particularly uh, helpful uh, uh, understanding of some aspect of this bigger project, then, uh, then I've done a lot of those interviews. Um, I've been doing it for 30 years. Uh, I started my broadcasting career actually in college. I did college radio, uh, everything from classical music to live radio drama to uh, a Christian radio program at my secular campus station. I'm sure I wouldn't be allowed to do what I did back in the (laughs) early 70s in college today at a state university. Shortly after college, I went to work for National Public Radio, and uh, that was where I really got most of my uh, significant training uh, in in doing this kind of work. Um, so that's that's what I do. Uh, actually, it might not hurt to mention a few other lines on my resume. Uh, after NPR, I worked for uh, a couple of years with, actually just about a year, with Chuck Colson. I helped him write a book. Um, uh, I worked for two years with Richard John Newhouse on the uh, quarterly periodical, which was the predecessor to First Things, a uh, mm-hmm. magazine called This World. And uh, 
then uh, spent about seven years uh, trying to figure out. I had uh, a couple of freelance jobs and a couple of uh, consulting jobs. I, I wanted to, to launch a new periodical, and I thought a magazine, a new magazine was a great idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a new print magazine at, at a time <laughs> yeah. when who knew that print was just about to die? <laughs> right, and, and, right, right. But um, I had worked in audio, and uh, I had a strange experience uh, in about 1990. I had four people, four very different people from very different spheres of my experience, suggest that I think about getting back into audio. Wow. And I, when the fourth person told me that, I thought, you know, God must be trying to tell me. <laughs> right, right. Because I had been out of audio production for a long time. And uh, so I thought, well, what, what might that look like? And I actually put together a proposal to do a a weekly arts and humanities magazine for NPR. My my job at NPR, I was a arts and humanities editor for Morning Edition. I had done other arts programming prior to that. Uh, and then actually was editor of a five-hour arts magazine and performance program uh, before I left there in 1983. So 1990, people are saying, Ken, you ought to think about getting back into audio. And I thought, well, what would that look like? I uh, put together a proposal for a, 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 a program that would look at arts and humanities issues from a covertly Christian understanding of reality. And I went to 25 foundations to try to get funding to do this show. Uh, I basically said, conservatives and Christians complain about media bias um, instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on another conference on the problem of media bias. <laughs> Would you give me a lot less money than that to actually do something <laughs> that was biased in a direction that we like? And, uh, and, and when the 25th yeah. rejection letter came back, yeah, I, I realized uh, God was trying to tell me something. <laughs> well, you know, this is a remarkable thing to consider because as I think about you know, the work of Marcel Audio. I, I'm kind of an early adopter. I was introduced to the show from by Kent Hill. I don't know if you remember Kent. Oh, yeah. 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 But Kent, uh, you know, he said, you got to check out this thing. This is like mid-90s. So you're just still in the yeah. tapes in those days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I became yeah, a tapes. subscriber back then. I thought, this is great. I mean, this is like the... Uh, the NPR of Christian radio. You know, this is what, yeah. like, when I turn on Christian radio, this is what I really want, you know, well, and yeah. I never get. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. so what I did, what I didn't tell you about my resume, a little <laughs> secret. So uh, for about two years, I worked in the mid seven, actually early 70s for a Christian radio program, a Christian radio station back before there was CCM, but they were kind of starting to do kind of Christian pop stuff. <laughs> but I was doing some pretty innovative things on this program involving poetry and <laughs> and reading aloud and all sorts of things. And uh, and that's the only job from which I've ever been fired. <laughs> and, and when the station manager brought me into his office to fire me, he said, and I quote, you're too creative to work in Christian radio. <laughs> and I said, well, at least we agree on something. In fact, there was a time when I thought maybe that could be on my tombstone. 
<laughs> but uh, oh, what an indictment! Uh, that, so that's a like great a year story. Later, <laughs> a year later, I was working at NPR. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So then, fast forward to 1990 when I thought about um, when I thought about doing an arts and magazine show, an NPR-like program. Originally, I, I I thought I could get it placed on enough NPR member stations to make it worthwhile. And I thought, well, this would be a way of kind of doing something really subversive within that system. Uh, a number of people said, well, why don't you try to get it on Christian radio? And, 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 and I said, well, I don't think Christian radio is interested in it. And I did a little bit of exploration. And here's a really interesting, I don't know, this is kind of off. <laughs> no, this is great stuff. Let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's telling, because, very telling. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't plan on talking what's, what's wrong with Christian radio. But, uh, what I realized, I actually t was in conversation with a couple of the larger Christian networks, as well as some individual stations. And what I realized is that almost all programming on Christian radio stations are effectively following the model of the infomercial. Yeah. That is, program producers buy airtime. Whereas in NPR, stations buy programs. Uh, and it's a totally different, the, the cash flows in, in mm -hmm. exactly the opposite way. Mm -hmm. And so with, with public radio, nobody can just buy time on a public radio station. Um, you basically produce a program, you find some underwriting to, to do the production. But a lot, of the, a lot of the programs are underwritten by the fees that are paid either by NPR or by the individual stations. Hmm. And that's when I realized that one of the reasons why uh, Christian radio was so um, superficial and hysterical hmm. was that the Christian radio programs were in effect just a infomercial to raise money for themselves or for some other ministry. Uh, uh, and, and in order to get people to give money, I mean, imagine if Garrison Keillor had to raise money every week back when he was doing <laughs> yeah. very home companion. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically, if, if, if the program's survival depended on a kind a sense of urgency in fundraising, the, the quality of the program would be different. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that that's when I realized that Christian radio, uh, Christian radio wasn't an option getting, uh, Christian and conservative foundations to support a program on NPR didn't seem to be an option. So I thought, well, in fact, you can hear this on, on the pilot of, that I produced in 1992, 30 years ago. I said in the script for that pilot that my intention was, I was still trying to get a, a, a radio program, but I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I had a weekly program, wouldn't it be interesting to put together an audio cassette with the greatest hits and every month we'd take the best material and this would be another another source of income, another revenue stream. People would subscribe and get a cassette with here's the best stuff that was heard on this program that Ken Myers hosts. Uh, and so the pilot was originally intended to be here's what that Bet, you know, that greatest hits cassette would sound like. Um, I, I didn't plan on doing an audio magazine at the time. I thought that the what, what, what became the Mars Hill tapes was going to be the tapes from the Mars Hill audio radio program. Uh, uh, but by, the, by, by early 1993, I realized the radio program wasn't going to happen. So then I thought, could we just do an audio periodical? Huh. And I thought, what a crazy idea. At the time, I'd been editing a uh, small 
desktop publishing newsletter that went to about 400 subscribers, which was a way for me to keep my finger in some kind of editorial work in after I left the magazines I'd worked for. Uh, oh, I also, I didn't mention, I worked for two years as editor of Eternity Magazine. I'm, yeah, I forgot yeah, that. Yeah, I remember, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was where I really developed my concern for how do Christians think about culture? Because I I'd spent seven or eight years working with NPR, and I knew how the culture thought about Christians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, our listeners, uh, I think, uh, if they're not already aware of Mars Hill Audio, are really the kind of people that would you know benefit from it. So yeah. uh, one of the things you've got now is an app. And right. so if you're listening right now out there in podcast land, you really ought to go to your phone and just uh, look for the Marcel Audio app, download it. And there's a, f uh, a feature that you do every Friday, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, for anyone, it's uh, it, there's no paywall or anything. Yeah. But it gives you a little sample of what, you know, you're up to. And I encourage people to, you know, do that. There's, like I said, no cost uh, barrier. But then I bet if you've listened to two or three of these interviews on the Friday feature, you'll say, I want the Marcel Audio Journal. Yeah. And some of the people that you have on the show, we've had on our show, like J Jason, yeah. Jason Baxter, I noticed Baxter. this last yeah. issue. He's, he's, he's on the current volume of the journal, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, he's, we had a great time with him, and I, I listened to his uh, your interview with him because I just been listening to the latest uh, journal. Yeah, but, yeah. So as we think about how how the Marcel sort of world has developed and grown, um, what are some things that uh, you know maybe we've not mentioned yet that you'd like for folks to know about? I I think I could say. Uh... Uh, 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 in terms of things that I've learned in doing it. I mean, I, 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 I've learned how to be a better interview. I did a lot of interviews when I was at NPR. I mean, actually, my first interview 50 years ago this fall, I did uh, my very first interview with Johnny Cash. Oh, and it's, uh, been, <laughs> it's been downhill since then. It's been downhill. <laughs> <laughs> East early. I was 19 years old and uh -huh. I interviewed Johnny Cash. And uh, I d that was my very first interview I did. And then I did a lot of interviews at NPR for Morning Edition. Uh, and then I didn't do interviews for a long time. And I started doing interviews again in, in, in 92 when I launched Marcel Audio. And I've learned a lot about uh, con how conversation works. And one of the things that, in fact, early, early on, we were a couple of years into it when one of my board members said um, that he thought that what Marcel Audio did was less provide answers and more an ambience. Hmm. That it provided a uh, an at the time, uh, talk radio was the thing, yeah. And talk radio was scream radio for the most part, right? <laughs> um, and uh, but the idea of, of of a thoughtful, intelligent conversation, which was what we really encouraged at NPR. I mean, when I did interviews at NPR, one of the, my favorite interviews I did while I was at Morning Edition was with the novelist P.D. James. For oh, instance. yeah, I remember that yeah. one. Yeah. And I talked to I talked to her for an hour, <laughs> but then the feature got edited down right. to seven minutes or so when it appeared on Morning Edition. But so the idea, and what, that's one of the things I learned from NPR generally was how to engage someone in a real conversation, not not just grilling them or interrogating them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and I've 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 come to uh, I. I, I Many years after I'd been doing this for a while, I read uh, uh, an essay by Joseph Pieper, mm -hmm. 
who who said uh, truth lives in conversation. Yeah. And uh, I remember for a minute I was disappointed because I thought truth li- surely truth lives in books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I've been collecting so many of them. Yeah, we can but, see we can but, see them in the back there. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a few, a few of them in the background. Uh, but the idea that truth lives in conversation, uh, and then I read an essay by uh, Robert Jensen about he he wrote a number of essays about the history of higher education and kind of a theology of higher education, and he points out that the university, the modern Western university, was founded not so much to promote the pursuit of truth, but to promote the pursuit of conversation about the truth. Oh, wow. Well, this is very pl- sort of like, you know, Plato and the dialectic. And, yeah. And that, yeah. 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 That, 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 he said, uh, he said, and he said, um, you know, you can pursue truth by yourself. Yeah. But to per- truth, pursue truth in conversation and in argument, in fact, but with the end, not argument so that you can kind of yeah. win, yeah. Not arguments so that you can beat down your opponent and show yeah. how much smarter than he is you are. Yeah. But argument for the sake of actually earnestly striving together to figure out what, what is true. Um, so that's something that I, I may, may have intuited when I started. Yeah. But something I've, I've come to appreciate. And that's why the, it's interesting to see, because again, I started before there were podcasts. Uh, you know, I I, I, I've said before that uh, someone said I, I had invented the podcast before the <laughs> right. Um, and uh, because of the fact that radio, I mean, th- th- there was possibility of conversation on talk radio when you got callers, but typically the, the way the callers were treated and the, and, and the kind of platform for ostentatious uh, yeah. you know, delivery of, of, of one's opinion and, and and the other thing, the idea that every opinion is as good as any other opinion, <laughs> it kind of works against the, the idea of conversation for the pursuit of truth. So, well, I, uh, yeah, I'd like yeah. to, I kind of like to zero in on that a little bit, uh, Ken, because you've been doing this for a while, and you I got into this because you had a set of concerns, and this led to a series of conversations and. Before we started recording, you mentioned that, you know, your thinking has changed over the years because of these conversations. Yeah. So when you when you first jumped into this, you know, what were the things that you were hoping to learn about and what were you thinking and and what's happened and where are you now? Well, let me go back a little ways, because as as I've thought about this, our having this conversation (laughs) figured out, uh, how do I how do I explain myself? I realized that I've I've been curious from the time I was uh, a freshman in college, if not earlier, uh, about how cultural change happens. I started college in 1970. It was the year right before I started college. Four students were killed at Kent State University by National Guardsmen in protests against Vietnam. Uh, It was a, a pretty tempestuous time. We're living in a tempestuous time now that the nature of the tempestuousness is a little bit different, but it's not yeah. in, entirely novel. Um, and I remember one of the first lectures I went to, uh, it was an open lecture at the University of Maryland when I was a freshman. It was right before classes started. It was with uh, William Kunstler, who was one of the lawyers who defended, other, I think it was the Chicago 7 or one of the radical groups. Mm. 
And he kept saying, when the revolution comes, when the revolution comes, and he kept talking about, you know, how we were going to overthrow the American establishment. And I was a nice Christian, you know, nice evangelical boy, <laughs> uh, never smoked, never drank. Uh, and suddenly they're talking about, you know, blowing up the White House or something. <laughs> and, uh, it, 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 yeah, you, you grew up in the uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is that my, right? I, I was, my parents were both from the Christian Missionary Alliance, but when I was about fifth or sixth grade, they started attending a, a Presbyterian church, an, an evangelical Presbyterian church, but very conservative. Um, and, uh, so I was trying to figure out how did we get here? I remember thinking, how did we get here? Yeah. A and, uh, and then I had an interest in, in the arts. I sang in some remarkable choirs in high school with some amazing teachers. Uh, I won't give you all the details, but I just was, uh, astonished. And, and I was aware of the fact that, uh, there was a, there was this incredible history of, particularly sacred choral music. Uh, that, you know, I was singing Palestrina and Bach and, and then composers into the 20th century. Uh, but I was wondering why music of that caliber wasn't being heard in, even in the early 70s in a lot of churches. What, what happened where I was even aware in college that we, we were kind of dumbing down the experience, the aesthetic side of, of liturgies. And so I was just curious about that. Uh, not, not so much for theological reasons, partly, but also I just want to know how it happened. So, so that was a, an interest I had. And then in 1975, I was out of college for a, a year or so. I went to work at NPR, and, uh, and suddenly I'm in a very post-Christian space. I would, and I was trying to figure out why does the, you know, the, the people I work with, for the most part, looked at the world differently than I did. Some of them came from fairly uh, conventional backgrounds. Some of them were uh, had grown up with some kind of church membership or activity. But at the you know when I by the time I got there, there were all sorts of what I thought of as as exotic worldviews. Uh, <laughs> and, and and I was trying to figure out well why why do these people think their way of looking at the world is plausible. What is it about yeah. their, their experience? And I discovered while I was working there, I discovered the work of Peter Berger right. and his idea, what he calls plausibility structures. Right. And Berger points out that, um, that our view of the world uh, is made plausible by the experience in everyday life of, uh, of, uh, of all sorts of things. That, that doesn't come to us as a package of theories comes to us as practices, but the practices mm -hmm. contain within them an implicit way of a, a kind of posture toward the world. Mm -hmm. And so I, that, that was, uh, again, I discovered his work while I was at NPR trying to figure it out. And I actually left NPR after just a few years to go to seminary because I thought, okay, I've, I've come out of a very strong church experience, good Christian ed programs, Christian parents, extended family, most of whom are committed Christians, three uncles who are missionaries. If I'm having trouble, if I'm having trouble understanding yeah. what's going on around me, then most laymen are having trouble understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So the seminary you went to, of course, was the seminary that you got to know uh, John Sundet yeah. at and uh, Peter Lighthart at, and that's uh, Westminster in Philadelphia. Right. right? Yeah. And so I, 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 I quit after 
three years not intending to go back to NPR. Uh, and I intended to go on and pursue a, 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 some kind of teaching ministry, either in, in the, as part of a church staff or in a study center or in something. Uh, and studied uh, at Westminster uh, Reformed Theology uh, and did just a two-year program. Uh, couldn't find anybody to hire me to do what I thought <laughs> I was equipped to do. Right. What I thought right. should be done. And while I was looking for a job, uh, a, a, an old friend uh, was the executive producer of Morning Edition, and he invited me to come back to NPR as arts editor for, for Morning Edition when it went on the air in 1979. And I thought, well, I hadn't planned on this, but... Uh, now, I want to I ask, has, has Westminster ever come to you and said, hey, we want to, like, demonstrate that, you know, we're kind of... <laughs> you know, a cutting edge institution. We have Ken Myers as one of our <laughs> well, alum. Uh, huh. <laughs> no. no, I haven't. In fact, I realized, um, I realized after I'd started Mars Hill and was doing this, that, um, I mean, this may be a little snarky. You may have to edit this up. <laughs> no, we like snarky. Give us snarky. <laughs> I, I wasn't. I wasn't Tim Keller, basically. <laughs> uh, so, so, and and it was. It, I mean, I was never really, you know, chagrined by it. But, but, but I thought, you know, even when I was at Westminster, I thought um, Westminster had committed itself to uh, training pastors, which is a great thing to do. But I, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, there are all these divinity schools in the UK and in the US that are as committed to training scholars as training pastors. And I yeah. thought if, if, the, if the conservative seminaries in this country aren't committed to training scholars, um, yeah. then, then we're not going to have the kind of theological resources we need to train pastors. Yeah. Another, let me tell you another uh, story that m may illustrate a weakness in, uh, in, in American Christianity <clears throat> that's related to this. Uh, uh, years, years ago, I met um, Frank Brock, who was then the president of Covenant Seminary, Covenant College, Covenant College, the PCA's college. And of course, uh, some relationship with Covenant Seminary, but Frank, uh, he, he had been a successful businessman who came to work as president of this college. And um, he and I got to talk for an hour or so, and, and he said uh, one of the things that disappointed him as president, he was getting ready to quit, he said he'd go out to presbytery meetings and uh, speak uh, to do fundraising for Covenant College. And he would speak to these clergy for the most part and, and try to get their churches to put Covenant College on their budget, uh, you know, to, 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 to donate to the school as part of their regular uh, budget. And he said, I had my, you know, my stump talk where I would say, you know, imagine how wonderful it would be if you had graduates from Covenant College who were members of your congregation. That meant that you had lawyers in your congregation who'd thought about a Christian understanding of law. You had teachers in your congregation who'd thought about education from within a Christian framework. You'd had scientists who were doing research thinking about a Christian framework. And he went on and, you know, he thought, well, this would be a, wouldn't this be a gloriously enriching thing for your congregation? And and he said, he said, maybe 10% of the clergy thought that was a good idea. 
And I said, why, why do you think otherwise? Um, he said, he said that most of the clergy felt threatened by it. And and they felt that they felt that if, if there was a, a study group getting together to talk about theology and law, then those people wouldn't come to the pastor's 15-part series on the minor prophets. <laughs> so, so in other words, um, thinking about the culture was, was viewed, as Frank saw it, and, and this is a, a point of view of a layman, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. That a lot of the clergy saw any effort that lay people gave to thinking theologically about cultural life would in some way compromise or threaten the the yeah. pure theology, the un, the yeah. unapplied theology that the, right, uh, yeah, that, right. that the pastor was was equipped to to provide. And I thought, well, that's very that's very telling. Yeah, 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 Tom. Uh, yeah, just to add to that, I mean, I found something very similar when I came out of my training. I mean, I started out sort of in a confessional Baptist world, and you had your, you know, your pure theologians, very safe, um, and uh, but very, you know, only touched on a range of things, and they knew exactly enough about some of the wider theology to know why we shouldn't read right. them. <laughs> um, and it was it was actually under studying under you know, I went to Duke Divinity with yeah, I had figures like Reinhard Hutter, I had uh, David Steinmetz and I just a whole host that really opened the the you know what you would call the larger Christian conversation and how how rigorously people are serious about bringing the Christian light into every yeah. sphere of life from different angles. But when I go back into kind of the world's uh, you know, a lot of the, the the pocket worlds of the evangelicals, a lot of times there is this suspicion that all of a sudden you've compromised some purity if you've read, you know, Gregory of Nyssa right. or something. And it, yeah. it is frustrating. It, and so I imagine you've bumped up against it enough with oh, yeah. your show yeah. in the work. Well, so uh, Tuesday I interviewed Mark Knoll about his most oh, recent wow. book called uh, America's Book, which is a big book on a history of the Bible in American culture from about 1789 to 1911 is the, uh, and, 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 and is kind of a cutoff point where he believes that the, the, you begin to see the radical decline of the influence of scripture as a, as, as a public document, as, as, as a voice in, in American yeah, culture. Right. And one of the things we talked about was, um, for, uh, Mark, I don't know if you know his work, but he, he's written quite a bit about oh, sure. yeah. the the he, uh, the perplexing problem uh, of Christians and slavery in America, and how um, right. the fact that you had Christians talking about the importance of Bible and living in accordance with the Word, um, and and in the eighteen you know mid nineteenth century, half of them use the Bible to defend slavery and half of them use the Bible to oppose slavery, not half yeah. and half, but, but, uh, so, and, and he's sure. often raised the question, yeah. you know, if we can't even figure out what the biblical teaching means with regard to slavery, uh, then what, what role does the scripture actually have for us? But then in, in our conversation and in this most recent book, he points out that when, when uh, Christian commitment has been allied with various causes, let's call them that, like uh, pro-slavery or abolition, that often the cause kind of takes over and uh, 
the question of Christian faithfulness and con- conviction, it, it's easy for Christian commitments to become instrumentally used to support the cause, uh, rather than for the cause to be expressions of a deep and rich Christian commitment. And we talked about how part of that's probably because of the fact that when when you take the, the consequences of a gospel out into public, um, we end up uh, necessarily building institutions that will take take that understanding and activate it. And there's always the dilemma of the institutions and the uh, a social cause or political cause regarding the gospel just as a, a tool to build yeah. the, to build this other cause. And that's uh, I think that especially happens when when the causes are not tied closely to the life of the church when they become yeah. parachurch. Yeah. Uh, causes and so I think part of the part of the challenge in in modernity. I mean, modernity doesn't just privatize religion. Modernity marginalizes the church. This yeah. is a big point that Peter Lighthart has made. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so we so most Christians who believe that there are consequences of the gospel out in the world can't imagine how the church could actually reflect that. We've relegated the church to kind of, the church is just another parachurch organization. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, the, the church is all about helping individual believers either just get saved or stay saved, grow in Christ. But the idea that the church would be a presence in the world, uh, that makes a lot of people nervous. So uh, so I think that's, that, that, I, I think that's a... Uh, hmm. But uh, back to Mark Knoll again for a second, because yeah. the point he made, he said that he, he talked a lot about um, the uh, 19th century Methodism and Francis Asbury. Yeah. And he says that Asbury wasn't that concerned about social issues. He wanted to build strong churches, strong Christian commitments uh, and avoided, in a sense, right. the public ramifications. And so I asked Mark, I said, does this mean that Within modernity, um, as uh, it's much easier to be a dualistic Christian, mm-hmm. to assume that we have our faith over here that has nothing to do with public life, and we have public life out here which has nothing to do with faith. It's much easier to live as a Christian with that kind of dualistic yeah. understanding than it is to actually have a, a, an integrated understanding mm-hmm. of, uh, of faith and life. Yeah, this gets re- this gets uh, you know, it's reflected in many uh, you know sort of things that we don't even note. For example, you know when we think about the old New England town green and the white clapboard congregational church. Well, most of those churches were you know uh, established during the colonial era when the church really was the center of community life, and they were right. referred to as meeting houses. Today. Uh, the cool thing to do is to get the warehouse on the outside of town, yeah. you know, and turn it into a yeah. smoke and light right. show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, yeah. So anyway, so that's the, the question of that dualism. And this gets back to the, the, the point that Frank Brock is making, that the pastors, in his experience, were in a sense uh, accentuating that dualism. They They knew how to give lectures on you know, the five points of Calvinism or or the minor prophets or whatever. But the idea of a, a Christian understanding of law 
or right, a Christian right. understanding of the meaning of education. Right. Uh, that that's that's not in their job description. Yeah, right. Uh, and I've had conversations with clergy about this, and I've suggested I've, I, I've had conversations with clergy who's who were having trouble in their congregation uh, troubles which were almost um, predictable symptoms of some kind of captivity to some dimension of modern culture. Yeah. And the pastor was kind of oblivious. The pastor tends to think it's just this, you know, it's just these three guys in my church who are causing problems. And I've said, you know, those three guys are acting entirely consistently with some pattern of life in, in yeah. the culture around them. You need to understand the culture better. Yeah. And, and, the, and the response is, oh, no, my job is to preach the gospel. Yeah. Um, I don't need to understand the culture that well. Or the, I need to understand the culture so I can market my message better. So, yeah, so right. it's market research. That's, that's yeah. helpful. But, but the, the bigger dynamics are typically not understood. Now, I, you ask about ways my thinking has changed. I should, before we run out of time or, or, <laughs> or, the, or the software dies, <laughs> I should say, uh, early on when I started, I, I, I still did have a kind of dualism that I didn't think I did, but I did. And, and, and the way I would say is that I tended to, uh, I tended to look at theological convictions about creation and the meaning of redemption and all sorts of other things as providing, uh, in a sense, a motivational platform for being active as a believer in the world. But I didn't really think that one's specific theological commitments actually had consequences for how we lived in the world in a, in a thick way, in a thick way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember saying to someone uh, early on that uh, basically the theology provides the platform or the motivation, but then we need good social science and uh, we need the critical work, analytic work to help us navigate. The idea that actually um, we, we also need... Uh, more the more theological resources and better theological resources to, to to develop the understanding, not just to provide the motivation for us going out and then be, becoming effectively secular right, uh, right. A, as we as we examine the culture. So that so that's that's been a big change. And th and then and I also thought that um, well, again, in my my theological training, uh, and here I'll say something about. Uh, what I think is a weakness in the Reformed world. Uh, historically, uh, the Reformed world, for the most part, has tended to be kind of nervous about me metaphysics. Yeah, right. I'll use right, the yeah. M we, we, Just use yeah, the we, word. We, yeah. <laughs> right. We've experienced that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> even, this even this week. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so uh, you know, here's an example that comes to mind. I have a book somewhere back there uh, on Jonathan Edwards and the Trinity. Yeah. And, and the, the, the forward to the book says that Edwards ha had written a lot of short works on, on Trinitarian theology that were never published because... Um, he was nervous that a lot of his reformed contemporaries would be suspicious because he, he wasn't simply deducing something from scripture. Gotcha. He was basically 
offering, and this is what I think the church did for 1,500 years. I think this is what the church does in, in the Nicene Creed. When we, yeah. when we say that uh, the, the Son is of one substance with the Father, that's not deduced from Scripture. However, right. the story and, and the, uh, the claims that are made about Christ in Scripture require some kind of adequate philosophical platform mm-hmm. right. within which they can be understood. But the platform itself isn't, isn't entirely deducible from Scripture. Yeah. And now that's something that in the 16th century, and, and spe- specifically, I think, in the 17th, 17th century, yeah. um, uh, as much under the influence of uh, 17th century rationalism, that's something that reform people got really nervous about, and the whole idea of sola scriptura means that you, we don't need philosophy or uh, yeah, philosophy yeah. and philosophical. It's just uh, carnal yeah. speculation. And, and, yeah, yeah, the weird thing. Yeah, the weird thing about that, Ken, is I've seen biblicism used in a kind of reducing or a reductive way, yeah. so as to say, well, since the scriptures don't explicitly address this, right then we're all free to do whatever we want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, the the scriptures don't explicitly address transgenderism. (laughs) Right, that's a good example, right, right. Yeah, I was going to make a quick point. I mean, a lot of the work that I'm d- doing is is around this issue, it, and 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 so yeah, again, we see the suspiciousness, especially out of certain camps, that if you don't follow their one particular pure figure in their their kind of uh, you know pure reform theology, if you will, that somehow you're you're you know you've compromised. But I think one of the things of studying the the, you know, the history of the church and the history of theology, the patristics, a lot of the medieval thinkers, in the assumptions of the early Reformation and post-Reformation scholastics, is how immersed and um, how you know how they lacked that nervousness right. about engaging in those things because they didn't work with the competitiveness um, between, uh, transcendence and the creation, because they understood these things in a radically different way. And I have tried, you know, as many, I mean, episode after episode to kind of get that proper way of understanding transcendence and creation so that you, you know, the creation of course is always dependent on the creator to be right. Um, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that it, it when it enacts itself, it's somehow not no longer dependent on the creator. Right, to right, be. right. <laughs> and so, if I do something and use my intelligence, I'm as dependent on the creator for using my intelligence. Um, but I'm also using my intelligence, and it's not in competition. Right. Um, but it can be ordered right. the right way or disordered, and that's where we get yeah. into the other issues. And people just throw up the reaction yeah. against yeah. that language. Well, and and that gets so. Um, <laughs> The Friday feature tomorrow, or earlier, uh, Chris mentioned our Friday features. I'm, I'm going to be releasing uh, an interview I did back on volume 108, uh, I think in 2011, with uh, Hans Borsma about the book uh, Heavenly oh, yeah. Participation. Great. Hans was at the time, I like oh, yeah. to say he was the J.I. Packer professor of theology. That gives him kind of street cred with reform people. But but he's a patristic scholar, principally, and uh, Gregory of Nyssa, I think, is the main area of interest. And and so, uh, you know, one of the things that 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 book summarizes a lot of 20th century research, mostly by Roman Catholic theologians, most of whom were recovering Orthodox, Eastern, the work of Eastern theologians. Yeah. uh, Long pre-Reformation, pre-Medieval. Uh, 
and uh, and, yeah. and basically recovering lost concerns about the relationship between God and creation. So, so folks out there in podcast land, we're having some technical difficulties today, uh, and uh, according to Ken, maybe it's the ghost of Charles Hodge that's uh, <laughs> haunting <probably>. us. <laughs> but, but why, why don't you finish your thought there, Ken? And we'll. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. So, Martial Audio was launched because I was trying to understand what is particularly problematic about the culture of modernity, and what I. L learned <laughs> years into the process is that the theology of creation uh, changes radically sometime late Middle Ages, early modern period, both Protestant and then Catholic uh, theology of creation. And that unless we really examine that theology of creation, well, obviously we don't have time to go into that today, um, that, that way of understanding, particularly the relationship between God and creation, unless we revise that and recover a, a, an understanding that had basically been lost or denied, that I, I think we're going to continue to have uh, stresses and strains and abnormalities of, of all sorts. And uh, so, so that's something I didn't anticipate when I went into this, because I thought, well, we all have a doctrine of creation, and we know God created everything, and that's all it says. <laughs> but, but actually, there's quite a bit more to understand. What, and one, one way of summarizing it really quickly, what, it, what is in view when St. Paul says, at Mars Hill, in him we live and move and have our being? Right. What what kind of metaphysical understanding of the relationship between God and creation is implied in that? And how did the church understand that for centuries until right. the early modern periods? So I think that a, uh, a lot of um, a, a lot of the um, perplexities that we encounter within modernity are better understood when we have a, a richer uh, understanding of a theology of creation. Unfortunately, that requires exercising some philosophical muscles that most of us just aren't used to exercising. Right. And, yeah. and uh, so that's one of the reasons why our circulation has declined over the last <laughs> 10 years, Mars Hill Audio, because I'm, I'm, I've decided if, this is, if these are the questions that need to be asked, yeah. even though there's maybe not as big an audience that's already yeah. asking those questions, these are the questions that do need to be asked. And uh, so that's that's um, one of the big things that I've learned in the course of 30 years of doing this. Well, you know, I'm disappointed uh, that the circulation has declined because I think that the need is greater than ever. And, you know, one of the things that I I'm hoping that this, you know, uh, podcast can do for you today is, you know, build that, you know, build that that subscriber base, um, because the people who listen to us, I'm absolutely confident will love your show. Well, thank you. If they're if they're not aware of it already, and we get tons of feedback from lay people who are, uh, you know, just delighted to to be introduced to some things that they just don't get yeah. on a, a you know in church or in Sunday school or or what have what have you. Um, you know, we don't spend any time trying to uh, make 
you know, the local church and its ministries look bad or anything. We just d dive into stuff and ideas and, and, the, and the very things that uh, we're talking about right now. Well, let's let's uh, kind of wrap things up. Is there anything you want to say just uh, as we do so, uh, Ken? Kind of a last thought. For just us? one one provocative. Uh, 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 open another <laughs> provocative can of worms, uh, and 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 this is maybe something you can think about interviewing someone else. Um, I, I, if you've listened a lot, you know that I really value the work of Oliver O'Donovan, who's a oh, yeah. radically underappreciated moral philosopher yeah. of our time. He gave the Gifford lectures the last this past year. Um, and one of the things I've learned, he writes a lot, uh, work in ethics generally, and particularly in, in political theology. Uh, did work in medical ethics early on also. But one of the things that I've learned from him in thinking about, well, we're going through an incredibly weird time politically and have for right. years. And I actually um, talked, had an email exchange with him back in 2016 about some things that I thought were kind of strange. And, and, and he reinforced in the email something that he's written in his book, and that is that, um, uh, that within modern framework of understanding, uh, the very idea of political authority is no longer uh, morally intelligible. And so we're having a lot of struggles. There are a lot of people like my friend Rod Dreher concerned about soft totalitarianism, a lot of people uh, concerned about the, the overweening state. Uh, I've been more concerned in my adulthood uh, with anarchy than tyranny or, or with the, the, the possibility of anarchy inviting tyranny. And that's because I think right. that, w w uh, we, that modernity gives us a false understanding of what freedom is. It also gives us a false understanding of what authority is. And mm. so I think that the, 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 one of the great challenges for the church is to bear witness to the idea that authority is a good thing. <laughs> right. There are right. a lot of people who are nervous about the abuse of authority. Of course, the abuse of authority is a bad thing, but authority as such is a good thing. And, and I'm concerned that... Uh, that that churches have not set are not reflecting enough on why is it what what are the reasons why uh, authority has come to be treated with such suspicion within modernity and then how do we bear witness to the fact that um that earthly authorities in some way represent god's own authority um yeah. uh not infallibly but but right. but fathers and kings clearly image in some way the fatherhood of God and and, and the kingship of Christ. Uh, right. So how do we how do we speak that word to a society that's uh, uh, first of all tied to a, an essentially anarchic view that every every individual should be free to do what they want to, and we're going to build up a powerful state that will impose that freedom on everyone. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Right. So that that's that's uh, again in terms of the the subject matter that I've become really interested in, it, it, and, and the, uh, there are theological. This isn't just a sociological, yeah. uh, a sociologically understood problem. I think there's a lot of theology involved here as well. Oh yeah, I think that's foundational. That's that's great. Well, Ken, uh, we've had some uh, you know uh, gremlins 
from Princeton Theological Seminary who have been working <laughs> against us uh, to uh, make this a challenging show to produce. But we've got a lot of material. But uh, I, I just want to, as we wrap up, really encourage folks uh, to do what I suggested earlier. Go and get your smartphone and go to the App Store and get uh, Mars Hill Audio Journal and download it. And uh, just make it, you know, a habit of listening to the free Friday feature. And my prediction is that if you do that, uh, you will become a subscriber to Mars Hill Audio. And there are a lot of other things that Mars Hill Audio produces um, that are really uh, great. You know, there are uh, extended interviews that are available through the through the app. There are, uh, you know, audio books and things of that nature. And, and I promise, I promise that your library will grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I think I've ordered more books after listening to your, your show and discussing them on here. So there right, is kind of right. a relationship to oh, the yeah. show. <laughs> that was, I've been told I have the gift of bibliography. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and really over the years, I would say your show, First Things and Touchstone have been the lifeline for me or lifelines for me uh, as a theologically conservative person who has got kind of a, an interest in, you know, sort of uh, a wide range of topics and wants to, to see sort of the connections and how, how my Christian faith relates to all of these larger cultural developments and so forth. So it's been, it's been great, Ken. Thank you for all your work. Thank you, Chris and Tom. Good to be with you. Good to be yeah. with you. Great having you. Yeah. And if uh, you would like to support the Theology Pugcast, you know, you can do that through Patreon and through other, in other ways. But uh, it's uh, great to, to have you with us. And thank you for listening. And we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and talk to you next time. Take care. All right. Thanks a lot, Ken. Bye-bye.